Hi all, it's me, Ella, your host of the Lemon Said Podcast, a platform dedicated to supporting you by discussing all things related to managing your health, wellness, and fitness journey, no matter how many lemons life throws at you. Today, we are going to hear from a paralysis survivor. Born and raised in Toronto, neuro rehab occupational therapist, author of Purpose and Paralysis, and new mom to the sweetest little boy, she is an inspiring and intelligent woman who suffered from trauma as a result of a motorcycle accident in 2010. The accident left her with a spinal cord injury and paralysis from the waist down. Struggling to cope with stress, anxiety, depression, chronic pain, and chronic unworthiness, she discovers the medicine of mindfulness, compassion, emotional energetic work, and shamanism. Alongside two bachelor degrees in health and education and a master's degree in occupational therapy, she describes her greatest accomplishment as learning to accept and love herself. Her healing journey also led her to a call towards reconciliation and decolonization. Her experience, knowledge, and personal battle against trauma sheds light on our individual journeys and encourages utmost resilience. Welcome to the Lemon Said Podcast, Jaysa Sulit. Thank you so much, Jaysa, for joining us today. I'm so excited to finally meet you. We've kind of been chatting over the last decade about our trauma. We have very, very similar stories, and I can't wait for everyone to hear Jaysa's story. But thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be a part of this. I'm honored to have you here. Last Google search. Special Agent Oso. It was my son's request. He wanted to watch this. And I'm like, what app is it on? Turns out it was on Disney. It was your son, right? My son wanted to watch it. Yeah, it was a cartoon. I found out. Book or podcast? Podcast, for sure. Really? I don't have time to read, but when I'm in the car by myself... I'll put on a podcast. Okay. I, I honestly thought you were going to say book because you've written one before. I know. But I think that's a score for me now. It is. It is. Thanks. <laughs> Fresh food or fried food? Fried first. That's a true Filipino. <laughs> yeah. Physical strength or mental strength? Hands down mental strength. Awesome. Yeah. And when life throws you lemons? You make lemonade. Yeah. yeah. On that note. We got a sip. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Honestly, the best lemonade I've ever had. Thank you. Really? I'm not lying. <laughs> She's just being that. kind. Third time saying that. Everyone's gonna start lining up, not for the podcast now. Just They're gonna for be the coming drink. for the lemonade. <laughs> I've never had it taste like that. Oh man. Okay, so that was the fun part. Now we're gonna get into the extra fun part, which is the interview itself. So. I first want to let everyone know that I think Jaysa is an incredibly inspiring woman. Um, So I think the first question that I naturally have to ask her after all of her years of work experience, school, and just life, do you believe that you're the same person today as you were in your early 20s? Definitely not. And I sure hope not. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, for context, like, all of us, but I'll speak for myself. In my teens and 20s, I had little self-awareness. I wasn't aware that I suffered from chronic self-judgment and that I had 
no self-acceptance practice, and thus no self-compassion, no self-care. So fast forward to now, I can say that I have that in my life. That's amazing. How did you come to discover that you had these chronic issues building up over those years? At what age or what point in your life did you say, oh shit, I need to deal with this? It was a year after my motorcycle accident. Okay. Yeah. Would that motorcycle accident be what you describe as the turning point in your life where I guess you kind of, you look at all things and you say, this has got to change. For sure. For sure. And funny that you say things have got to change because two days before the motorcycle accident, it was August 26, 2010. I was, had just turned 30. No, I was going to turn 30 actually. And I wrote in my journal a request to God. And it was, please change my life. Oh my God. I know because I I was just very unhappy and unfulfilled. I had broken up with every boyfriend I had been with. Like, and you know, whether it's like two year, four year, it was always me who had broken up. I had changed careers twice already. I left OT to become a teacher. OT is occupational therapy? Yes, occupational therapist to become a teacher. Left being a teacher to be an OT again. And then that summer I was going to leave OT to explore um, being a lawyer. And I was trying to change everything around me, right? But not realizing that some interchange had to happen. And two days after that is when I had the motorcycle accident. Okay, I have goosebumps right now because that's exactly how my story happened, except it was one day before that I had that kind of reflection. I didn't write it down, but I had like, I just, I prayed. Um, And I usually pray just, you know, like, before I go to bed, say my prayers, and that I had the exact same message and prayer to God. And the next day, I got into my motorcycle accident. And here's what's even creepier. I was also turning 30. That is so creepy. <laughs> We're like soul sisters or something. <laughs> I know. There's there's so much similarity. And that's why I'm yeah. very honored to be here, to yeah, be interviewed by you. And for me just it's... to meet you. I'm like... So we were actually connected by my god sister. Shout out to her god sister <laughs> and Jesus' best friend. Um, but she connected us because she said, you guys have such similar stories. And now sitting here with you, I'm learning more about you. But every time I learn more about you, I get these chills because I'm like, that's like my life. Like, <laughs> I don't know how we have all these coincidences. But anyway, I'm so excited to hear the rest and see what else we have in common. Same here. <laughs> okay, so I know this is a little bit difficult to kind of go back to, but um, I think I'd like to hear more about the motorcycle accident, but maybe let's take it even a few, go few years back and talk about what your childhood was like and then maybe lead into your motorcycle accident and how that was so life-changing for you. Mm-hmm. So, I again, I know what I share is not unique to me, that it's my experiences are, are relatable to many. That being said... For, I'll speak about my story and I you don't know what you don't know and so growing up you just think yeah normal childhood right and it's only now that I've done a lot of healing work that I can look back and be like oh 
like for context, when I started doing therapy after the accident, I only started therapy after my accident, right? Like at 30. And you would think that majority of the therapy would be about having a disability, life with chronic pain and everything accident related. 90% of the therapy was childhood stuff. Oh, wow. I was like, oh, I didn't know I had childhood stuff. I didn't know I had childhood stuff. You know, it was just, I didn't know I had childhood stuff. And so, you know, to answer your question, even, so I'm an only child, um, which I think makes it harder because I can't, there's nobody else who's experiencing my parents' parenting Mm. than me. Interesting. Right? And so if I could just point to, like, my parents loved me. I was their life. But they also didn't have a healthy marriage, uh, no healthy communication. And if there is one thing that, and I acknowledge my parents, no one's perfect, right? Absolutely. And uh, I love my parents and they love me. But that being said, the imperfect people that they are, the one thing that each of them did that really planted seeds of unhealthy patterns into my adulthood would be with my mom. I was never able to express my emotions. Anything that was, I'm upset, I'm sad, I'm disappointed, I'm angry, nothing. It was just being praised for being obedient. Until this day, even though I'm 43, I have built myself up to express myself and say what you did disappointed me, made me angry, turns into her unfriending all of my friends on Facebook, including my partner, my sister-in-law. Like oh, no. <laughs> She is not capable of holding my emotions. Mm. So that's very unhealthy, right. you know, growing up. And that's up. from childhood. Yeah. Mm. And then with my father, the main thing that contributed to pain in my child, which I didn't know, and again, this is common humanity, not just me, is him when he gets mad at me, mm. like being angry at me. So the fear of being in trouble carried on into every relationship in my life. That I'm afraid to communicate with my partners because they might get mad. And it all comes back to my dad, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, and not to undermine this stuff. Right. Because this happens to everybody. Right. But it prevented me from having healthy relationships with friends and romantic partners. Yes. Everyone has a different tolerance level of how they either accept that those types of instances happening in their childhood. And for you, that's how it turned out to be. And to your point, it wasn't that healthy. So how did that kind of impact the rest of, of your journey? Oh, well, then it it's a, it took up the content of a lot of my therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, working on that. Working on... Because it would continue to manifest in my friendships, in my relationship with my partner, um, continued relationship with my mother... And would you say that is why you were so unhappy leading up to your motorcycle accident? Yeah, I remember for so long, you know, journaling up until the accident. A lot of my journaling was I didn't know how to be. Mm. I didn't know how to feel. I, did, I didn't know how to be. Like, how do I act? 
How do I behave? Because for so long growing up, I had to wear a mask. So I, since probably since age three, it was a mask of smiling, obedience, grateful, kind, all the titas and titos, you know, the aunts and uncles, everybody. Which means Jesa is so nice. Like that was the box that I had to live in. Right. And so living in this box of I'm always ha- I always have to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. You're like that for so long. It gets to a point where it's like, I don't even know how I'm supposed to be right now. Or like who how you are. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know. If you're not allowed to even acknowledge, if, you're, if your feelings are not acknowledged by another person, how am I going to learn to acknowledge it? So if you don't even know how you feel, there's a basis of like, you know, who you are. Yeah, I didn't know who I was. And that in turn not predicted but that changed how you perceived education as well did you not did you not pursue um certain courses that helped you change or understand a bit of your past well interestingly you know i think if i were to turn back time i would have gone into art Mm. and that's what i was quote-unquote gifted in like I, i went into the gifted program for art but because I was supposed to be a doctor, you were told you had to be a doctor. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, impl- you know, I went into the health stream. Something because right. I didn't want to be a doctor, but I was like, I'll do something similar. Sure. So I ended up applying to nursing, life sciences, and phys ed, and I only chose phys ed because they got to go do like camping, and like my friends were there, so I chose phys ed because Lynn chose phys ed, <laughs> our mutual friend who introduced us. So I chose phys ed for all these odd reasons, but it opened up the pathway for me to continue this curiosity had about the body. Right. But, um, yeah, it, I, I can't really take credit for, like, choosing this course and was it really because of my history? Or I will say that taking mindfulness and self-compassion, those courses that I did later on after the accident, was definitely... I would not have taken those courses if it weren't for the challenging childhood that I had. Right, right. Okay. And also and also the impact of, of the accident on top of your childhood. Yes. Okay. Exactly. So let's go into your motorcycle accident. Um you told us a little bit about what your thoughts were, your mindset, your lifestyle prior to how did the accident happen? What were kind of, you know, the things that you experienced in the thick of it um how were you emotionally mentally how did you handle it and how did you evolve Hmm. so yeah up until that accident i was just kind of lost and not that aware of i just knew i needed change and then the first year of my accident i was actually usually excited and feeling great because for the first three months i was an inpatient Okay. At Lyndhurst. Now, as an inpatient, life is kind of, for me, it was kind of cool because it was the first time I ever lived outside of home. Mm. So it was like my own space. Yeah. yeah. And and people serving you. <laughs> people serving me. And, you know, and I always had visitors. Every day I had a visitor. So it was nice. And then after that, you know, I did rehab full time going like as an outpatient, supplemented with um, going into private clinics. But then it wasn't until the one-year mark after my accident. So I had progressed in that one year from a wheelchair to a walker, from walker to two single-point canes, then to two hiking sticks. 
and still needing a wheelchair for like long distances. So I was really progressing in that first year. But when the one year anniversary came and I still wasn't able to go back to work because my job as a neuro rehab OT is to help folks get out of bed, stand up and help them walk. Which you can't do How, how can yourself. I do that if I was still walking with two hiking sticks on my right. balance? So, and I, was, and I thought I would be running by the time, you know, a year had passed. And I was still living with pain. And so I was like, this is my life now. I have to live with, you know, pain. I can't walk barefoot. I can't do Filipino folk dancing because you have to do that mm, barefoot. Yeah. I can't snowboard. I can't run. Like, there are all these things. And so I that's when I really started to get depressed and have anxiety. Um, and so at the one-year mark, soon after that, I went online and I literally Googled mindfulness free Toronto because I knew about mindfulness through the employee wellness program at my work because they would have like free mindfulness um, sessions during the lunch hour for staff. So that's how I heard about it. And since I wasn't at work for a year, I hadn't practiced mindfulness. I'm like, let's see what's free in Toronto right now. And that's how I found the eight week program called mindfulness based stress reduction Mm -hmm. by John Kabat-Zinn. And it was free because the guy who was teaching it, um, he was this retired guy who was passionate about teaching the course. And so I took that course. And over the eight weeks, I developed this practice in becoming more aware of what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what I'm sensing, becoming like an observer of my experience. And not only did that capacity to observe yourself help me with pain, anxiety, and stress. But for the first time, I started to see myself and my patterns and how, oh my gosh, I think that, I believe that, I, I, I've been suffering. And that's when I realized I had been suffering from chronic self-judgment. And it was more clear when I looked back. I was like, wow, I didn't even realize how unhappy I was. Because, mm. you know, you could journal, but... Like the in the moment awareness of what's happening and how oh that's why I feel this way that's why I act that way because I think this that way and I believe that and to be able to just step back so that's when I said okay I need to get trained in this and share this with others that's amazing mm-hmm. and then is that the same time that you actually took the courses to become a mindfulness teacher yeah so I had a really great auto insurance adjuster which I just want to share that because normally it's negative. Right. But there are are positive experiences and the adjuster funded all of my flights and accommodation in Boston. Oh, wow. Where all of the training was. And obviously she paid for, well, she approved the funding of, you know, the training. So I was was able to do, um, like, go to Boston three times over the course of two years to become a certified mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher. That's amazing. Yeah. Because t- to your earlier point, there are a lot of individuals, myself one, it was really, really hard getting support from the insurance companies. You're asking for the smallest things like an extra physio appointment and they're getting declined. So it's actually really nice to hear from your perspective that you had a different experience and you got the support that you needed to push through your recovery. And not having to stress about an adjuster that doesn't support me, that 
allowed me to focus on my rehab. Did you also have a lawyer that supported your case and your recovery? I did. And um, the first lawyer I had was recommended by a friend, like one of the titas who's like, oh, I know somebody who is a lawyer. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And, you know, I'm in like, you know, ICU and just signing, you know, contracts. And then it was after three months of seeing very suspicious activities, you know, like submitting treatment plans that wasn't exactly was done. And that happened a few times. And I was like, okay, these, and I think these guys are just trying to see me as a dollar yeah. sign. And so I, that was the first time that I learned that when it comes to the auto insurance industry and you have a file with somebody, like you've got an insurance file that you're the boss. Cause I didn't realize that I mean, I could pick any lawyer. I could pick any case manager. I could pick any physio. Like, I'm the boss. Mm -hmm. I'm going to hire you. And if I'm not satisfied with your service, I can fire you. But they don't tell you this. Right. But I, I'm glad that I learned that that way. Because then I, I then went on to do, to share that and go to different hospitals and share. But then I did my research and then I ended up finding who I did. I ended up going with um, Greg Neinstein of Neinsteins and Associates. But one thing I learned with looking for a lawyer, it's like dating. You've got <laughs> so to shop true. around. It's true. <laughs> and, I, and I'm glad you had the ability to do that because I do. There are a lot of people who don't even know that you can find a lawyer. Some people feel they can't afford it, but there are different types of payment plans and options. Um, but your lawyer should be on your side as well as your insurance company. Yes. <laughs> and they are. They are on your side. And if you can, from the get go, be on the same page and be like, you know what, lawyer, adjuster, you're both on my team. I don't want this. You're on my side. You're on my side. You're both on my side. Right. I need you both to work together. And right. that's really how it should be. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's an important message um, that not a lot of people talk about when we, when we think of trauma. Mm -hmm. But the administrative and the legal aspect is actually a huge part in it. So thank you for sharing that with our listeners. I also want to go into a little bit about your painful experiences and how you um, navigated through the years as you discovered mindfulness. What were some of the things that you were feeling um, really deep inside, things that individuals typically don't have an understanding of when you're going through something traumatic? What were some of the major challenges that you felt people just don't understand? For me, the greatest challenge was feeling my body. And I didn't realize that that was my greatest challenge until I saw a theme. My physio would be like, how does, you know, my physio would do some kind of intervention. And then he'd say, how does it feel now? How does it feel now? And I'm like, mm, I wasn't paying attention. You know, I'm like watching the TV, watching other people while he's doing what he's doing. So there was always that like, oh, I wasn't paying attention. I don't know what the difference was. I don't know how I feel. <laughs> and then, you know, whether I'm like on the massage table or, you know, doing cranial sacral or whatever it is, you know, they'll be like, what do you feel here? What do you feel that? And I was like, I don't know. Like I learned throughout the years that I don't live in my body. Mm. Like, I don't feel. And so that being said, the hardest part was then learning how to feel into my body and then learning that when you start feeling into your body, 
you will feel things, or I started feeling things that I had not felt that I was probably repressing. And so, for example, four years after my accident, I was doing um, an intervention called somatic experiencing. It was a retired nurse who moved into the work. And, you know, a lot of what these people do is all kind of similar. They kind of guide you into your body and they tell you to pay attention what's coming up and they'll guide you like, what do you see? What do you feel? And for me, I felt like there was um, like a piece of wood in my neck. And then it's all about going deeper. Okay, let's describe it more. It's all about whatever cueing they give, whether it's visual or um, feeling. It's about just journeying into the body more, into parts of yourself that you don't feel. And all of a sudden, I started bawling. And this is just one example. This is multiple, multiple examples, multiple stories like this. But this is just one example that I started bawling so hard. And I knew people down the hall could hear. And it was grief and fear of the moment when they put the collar on me at the, like, when the ambulance came. But for four years, I had repressed the emotions that come with, oh my God, I have a spinal cord injury. I can't move my legs. I've got a collar around my neck. And I never once expressed the fear and the anger. Like number one was the fear. Right. And I know there's like a shock element there. But um, yeah, and then very similar, you know, like it wasn't until three, four years after, again, a similar kind of therapy. This time it was body talk. And then, you know, she she does it in a different way. But again, coming to the body, what do you feel? What do you see? What's happening? And then going deeper and all of a sudden, ah! and it's not always ending up in crying, but it's just meeting a part of you that was not expressed and it stays in your body. Right. And that, the journey to that is hard because it requires courage, but it requires this capacity to feel, you know, if I never did that. And again, like it goes back to my childhood. I wasn't allowed to express anger or fear. It's always just, okay, thank you. Hmm. Right. Like, so then you, and I really didn't have that capacity to feel a body that feels a range of emotions. I'm so surprised that it took you three to four years after your accident to feel because when you go through physical trauma, in addition to the emotional and the mental, you're in pain, physical pain. How were how were you translating that physical pain then if you weren't really feeling feeling? I think like mindfulness, the practice of being curious and acknowledging pain. So you know, pain arises in my feet or back. Mindfulness is what helped me to what's going on here. Okay, I feel a sharpness, five out of ten. I'm having thoughts of life sucks. I'm having emotions of frustration. Okay, maybe I should sit down and rest. So there's that like turning towards with curiosity. So what's going on right now? What am I thinking, feeling, sensing? But when there is another person's presence, and it doesn't matter who it is, but usually it's like some kind of healer, therapist, body worker. When you have somebody else who's giving compassionate presence, mm. that then allows allowed me to go deeper because I normally needed guidance to go deeper. Right. Right. It like, wasn't something you were doing on your own. Yeah. Like my mindfulness just took me to like, okay, I feel this in my skin. and But they would go deeper listening. Like, 
and that's probably where I can take my mindfulness practice on my own is like be more curious to go deeper. But, you know, I still am on this journey of living into my body and I still need somebody else to guide me in deeper into like, you know, are these memories held in our fascia? Is it held in our nerves? Is it held like, I don't, it's, you know, the body's a mystery. But um, yeah, I don't think I could get to those like unlock those repressed experiences by myself right even though i could work with pain the physical pain but the emotional pain is deeper have you heard of the face healing method and lymphatic drainage after suffering from bell's palsy commonly known as facial paralysis at the age of 33 Catalina decided to change her habits and live a balanced and healthy lifestyle to heal her face, mind, body, and soul. Today, she is 43 years old and the mother of three beautiful children. She is a pharmaceutical chemist and a facial yoga teacher by trade, with a master's in pediatric oncology. She has witnessed the transformation on the faces of more than 6,000 women who, with real testimonies, have shared their journey in the awakening of facial awareness. Carolina is now offering face yoga lymphatic and body drainage at Sweat and Tonic Spa in Toronto. Her seven-day face yoga challenge is also available online. For a limited time only, Carolina is offering 10% off these services. Simply use Lemonade 10 at checkout to redeem your offer today. That's Lemon AID 10 at checkout. Okay, so it sounds like for the first three years, you were kind of tolerating the pain at surface level and addressing more of an immediate concern. How do I address this sharp pain in my knee or my elbow, but not understanding what's behind it from an emotional perspective? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And what I started to learn, you know, into year three, four, five, six, because I still do therapy to this day. Mm Mm-hmm. That every time I had one of those releases, my gait and posture always improved immediately. Mm. And I'd be like, why is that? And like, because that part of your body is now able to move freely with right. the energies flowing through it. The nervous system is able to move through it. It's just, it can function more optimally because it's not holding onto this rep- where energy's not flowing, attention wasn't moving. Right. That's so interesting because I, I personally have not made that connection yet in my recovery. Um, but it's something that I definitely want to explore because there are some t- things that I, I can't explain sometimes. And I want to know what's what's causing it. <laughs> you know, if it doesn't come up in an x-ray or an MRI, I'm like, okay, I guess it's okay. But sometimes it's not. Yeah. In Canada, North America, you know, even as Filipinos, like so much of this world is colonized with a type of thinking that requires scientific evidence. Right. That requires you, if I don't see it, if I can't measure it, it doesn't exist. But what I've learned in this journey is energy, spirit, and things Medicine that includes energy and spirit can go deeper than what Western medicine yeah, you know, can I'm, acknowledge. I'm just starting to learn that. Not that I've explored it yet or felt the benefits of it. I'm just starting to learn now. Um, and I'm really excited to see what it will bring to me. But I am a victim of that mindset. I'm like, if you can't prove it, I don't want it. That's Sorry. how I was too. 
That's how I was. Until you get desperate. That's the only time I opened up to it. I got desperate. Right. And that's essentially where I am now. So I'm excited to get to the point where you are today. (laughs) Um, But I want to go take a little step back because you touched on childhood trauma a couple of times, but also your heritage. Um, Both of you and I have a lot in common. One of them being our culture. And as you were talking about your childhood, I'm like, yeah, that was mine too. That was mine too. So there's got to be something here that shapes who we are because our cultures that stems way back, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's, they're similar and it shapes us. Mm -hmm. So I understand that you are a second generation immigrant from the Philippines and um, like myself, but I'm curious, what role do you feel your parents played in the upbringing, in your upbringing throughout your childhood? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, especially because I didn't have any siblings. I did have my grandmother, my Lola, who helped raise me. It was really just my parents who, number one, were the main influencers and how to be in relation to anybody, how to be in relation to yourself. So everything I learned (laughs) and how to relate to myself and others I learned from my parents. And um, a lot of what I'm going to say is related to them being Filipino, first-generation Canadian, but I know there's similarities across cultures. That being said, you know, the, the being Catholic, and with all respect, you know, I, I was raised Catholic, but um, yeah, there are certain things that limited me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and like one of it would be our mother's generation and beyond, like our Lola's generation, I'm learning because of all of my friends and we talk about the same issues and problems. And I, as I talk to my therapist, I'm seeing that, oh, this is a thing. Our mothers and our grandmothers were emotionally immature, mm-hmm. right? So my mom's inability to honor my anger it's because she wasn't allowed. Right. She didn't have that capacity. So how is she going to meet mine? Right. If she, say with my grandmother. A lot of that is cultural, right? Agreed. It's that even though a lot of Filipino titas are like bold and, you know, big and bold, there's also the ones that are just, you know, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And because our mothers, for many of us, were emotionally immature, their emotional needs are not met. And so that lands on the daughter. And you put something else on top of that is so many of our mothers are afraid to divorce. That's just not what you do in our culture. And so here you have unhealthy marriages. And, <laughs> you know, they don't know how to communicate. And it's just, you, they just stay together. And just growing up in an unhealthy, like that's the, the biggest thing that you can give to a kid is, a happy marriage, happy father, happy wife. Even if you split up, at least you're both happy. You move on. Like, so yeah. And then other things related to being Filipino and the fact that we were colonized by the Spanish is there is a lot of white supremacy in our culture. Not only are you, there's racism against black people, but we're racist against dark Filipinos, you know, like our own kind, our own kind. So like, for example, in kindergarten, 
during parent-teacher interviews, my teacher told my mom that I had my hands on my nose pinching the bridge of my nose. And my mom was quite embarrassed because she didn't know that I continued to do that. But that's something I was raised to do is to try to make your nose look more Caucasian. I remember my parents doing the exact same thing to me. And when my baby brother was born, he's seven years younger than me, they would teach me to do that to him while he was in the crib. <laughs> so, you know, that anti, that anti-black and also the anti-queer, like, mm-hmm. I had crushes on girls, and I wish I could go back in time and explore it, but no, that was not allowed. Of course not. Yeah, so a lot. those are just some examples of, you know, the the pains of our culture. Right, which is, which is unfortunate, but I think the best part about it is that we're learning about it now, mm-hmm. and so much that we're able to talk about it. I think that's the biggest barrier is not being able to talk about it. We yeah. all have the same experiences, mm-hmm. but is anyone talking about it? No, because the majority of us are ashamed or we're afraid of getting in trouble. But um, I think that's the goal that we're trying to do here is just break that barrier. I want to touch a little bit more on how this pushed your career path, um, how it shaped it and who you are today. Yeah, I think someone who not only had trauma, but also who lived so much in the head, that combination of not living in my body and having suffering in the body kind of laid this groundwork for, this is why we need mindfulness. This is why we need self-compassion. Because mindfulness is what allows us to have that curious awareness to looking at what am I thinking? What am I feeling? What am I sensing? What's going on? How am I experiencing life in this moment? And then the self-compassion part is what allows me to comfort, soothe, and warm myself up, make myself feel safe when whatever is coming up is very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I there yeah. So because I have been gifted this opportunity with resources to discover more and more in my body and see that, wow, the body's a book. Right. And it It is your guide. It is your guide, but it cannot be your guide if you're not connected to it. But I cannot Mm -hmm. be connected to it if there's all this trauma that's repressed. And so mindfulness and self-compassion for me, why I'm so passionate to teach it is because I see in my story, in my journey that it's really what's allowed me to be in my body more. Because in your journey within, like I'm all about the journey within, like I've always loved that term. The journey within requires that curious mindfulness, but it also requires that courage to embrace the pain. Right. And how did you choose the mindfulness direction from neuroplasticity and neurological rehabilitation? Mm-hmm. Was there a connection and adaptation in your mind um, in that process of making that switch? I love that question. Thank you for asking that and bringing in neuro rehab and neuroplasticity here. So um, for those who don't know, before the accident, I was in an OT in neuro rehab, working with folks who are survivors of brain injury. And in neuro rehab, we work on the premise of 
the truth of neuroplasticity, which is our brain, our spinal cord, our nervous system's capacity to change, to learn anything you don't know, to unlearn what you don't want to do. It, it's till the day you die, your nervous system can always change. It's plastic, right? Plastic is changeable. And so that's what I loved about working in neuro rehab. It gave me hope that when I'm working with someone who had a brain injury, that you can learn to walk again. You can learn to talk again. You can improve your attention. And for me, it was all about, I could change. Because remember, I didn't have any self-love and I wanted to change. So I always loved neuroplasticity. And then fast forward to after the accident and I took that mindfulness course, I saw how mindfulness and self-compassion changes our nervous system. Because of neuroplasticity, any habit that I have, I can unlearn. Any habit that I don't have, I can learn. And so where I, in the past, it was all about changing who I was because I hated myself. And I was like, I can change because I deserve more love and compassion. So that's kind of the premise of neuroplasticity and why I still teach it to this day. And I'm still a neuro rehab OT. So my career hasn't changed. I'm still doing occupational therapy, teaching neuroplasticity. But now instead of helping people to move again, it's how do you move with more mindfulness and compassion? How do you right. soothe and comfort yourself? And I still bring in the neuroplasticity and teaching folks that when you bring mindful self-compassion to the moment, you're actually down-regulating your nervous system. So I still bring in the neuroeducation. It's almost like a, it's just a, another level of it. It's another modality that I can use as right. an occupational therapist. That's great. Mm -hmm. And how are you finding your practice with mindfulness included now? Do you find your clients are more successful in their recovery or is the recovery expedited in any way? Yeah, what I love about teaching mindfulness now and self-compassion is it's not just about okay, I, you know, I my pain's a little less now. It's when someone can be kinder to themselves and catch themselves when they're beating themselves up. Not feeling guilty for when they take time for self-care when normally they would feel guilty and not take time for self-care. That for me is what makes my work now different from before and what makes it more fulfilling now. I was just about to say it sounds a lot more rewarding. That's amazing. Did you feel that you had support from anyone else in the process of recovery, your journey through mindfulness other than your immediate family? Yes. Um, I have... I continue to have a big circle of friends. And because I'm a therapist, a lot of these friends are in rehab. Oh, wow. Yeah. So some of my friends are my my massage therapist. Some of That's my friends. That's convenient. Very convenient. <laughs> very convenient. Because then it's just, yeah, you know, in that world of always talking about healing and growth, like we, that's just something that we all relate to. But, and that being said, because I'm also a therapist, I also befriend my rehab team. So I still continue rehab now with my chiro, massage, osteo, acupuncture, somato experiencing, garotonics. And I'm friends with my therapist because, you know, I'm going in there. I'm not really just a patient. I'm also like thinking as a therapist to them. 
And so that's really big that I've got a community of people who are very passionate about the body. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. actually really amazing because you need to trust your therapist. Yeah. The fact that you had that rapport with them already, I mm -hmm. think, worked to your benefit. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that through this podcast, we can help our listeners build that rapport with some of the experts that we listen to on the podcast because it is important to trust the person that you're working with. If you don't, it's very, very difficult to make progress. Yeah, and You've they don't deserve your trust. money. Yeah, that too. Exactly. Yeah, like I've, that's something I've learned now, again, with that whole, I'm the boss. Yeah. Like, if you're not satisfying my needs, my limited financial resources has to go to where it's actually helping me, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. But I also think, you know, there are some individuals where you have to manage your expectations, right? Like, I think you and myself have gotten to a point in our recovery. I think yours, you said, was a one-year point. Mine was about six months where I thought I'd be back in the gym squatting. I actually told the doctor I'd be back by day two from the accident. Mm -hmm. I literally did not think that my injuries were that bad. I thought I could do it. And it took me almost five years in total, right? So... Um, I think, yes, I absolutely think you're the boss and you are your own advocate. You have to be your own advocate in your journey to recovery, but you also need to be mindful and manage your expectations realistically. And I appreciate you sharing your experience because it's very humbling, right? As someone who has achieved so many physical goals in your life and knowing that you have the capacity to push your body to certain limits and then to be humbled and be like, you can't. Yeah. It stops here. <laughs> and having to rebuild that, well, you need to change your mindset. It took me a very long time to change that mindset, as I'm sure it did for you, too, because you knew where you wanted to be at the one-year mark, but that's not where it ended up. So that's so interesting. What is the biggest challenge that you faced in your journey, not only your journey to recovery, but in your whole life? What was the biggest challenge for you? Uh, 2018, so eight years after the accident, and I had been practicing just mindfulness. I didn't really have a real self-compassion practice yet. And up until that fall of 2018, I already had a feeling that something was missing in my practice. Because like mindfulness can feel like torture sometimes mm. because mindfulness is about accepting, accepting, don't try to change, accept, accept, be with... So when you're feeling depressed, How do you, accept it, accept yeah, it, be with it. That's be not easy. It. <laughs> and it's like, this is torture. You're just saying, sit in your shit, sit in your shit, smell it, smell it, look <laughs> at it, be aware. And it's like, don't try to change it because that's not mindfulness. So I already was having this feeling, that, okay, something's missing. And then November 2018, I had my first miscarriage. Mm -hmm. I'm and sure you hear that. Thank you. Yeah. Nobody, to nobody told me that you can have postpartum depression after a miscarriage. And so when I started having suicidal, so I've got a history of suicidal ideation. So it started happening again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thankfully, every now and then someone would just call me when I needed it. And I would tell them, you know, like, oh, you know, I'm having visions of myself jumping off so-and-so um, particular bridge. And so the more I talked about it, the more I realized, okay, I need to get help. So I went to my physician. I said, I need help. 
And that was the first time that I sought help, even though I've had suicidal ideation. Even before, before. the accident? Oh, yeah, before the accident. Before the accident, after the accident. But this time, I think maybe, maybe it's my mindfulness practice that had me aware of like what how problematic this was maybe i cared for myself a bit more enough to do something about it so i literally asked my physician refer me to a psychiatrist i need to be assessed so i got sent to the center for addiction and mental health and um, was diagnosed with um emotion uh, mood disorder emotional mood disorder and anxiety generalized anxiety disorder and during that talk, I opened up about smoking weed. And so I'm embarrassed to say this, but, you know, he asked, do you drive? I was like, yeah. <laughs> Not knowing the repercussions. Oh, no. I know. And so he required that I join a women's addictions group and give a urine sample every week and complete <laughs> complete three months of this group. And so here I was, you know, every week in a circle being like, my name is Jason Sulit and I use marijuana. It's been three weeks since I've been sober. And that was a hard time for me because it was the first time that I couldn't use marijuana anymore. Mm -hmm. And I was been smoking since I was 18. Wow. Yeah. And Were you dependent, you'd say? Yeah. Okay. I didn't realize I was dependent until that group. Interesting. Okay. So what I learned uh, in that group in not being able to smoke was when I needed to smoke the most. And it was every time I left my parents' house. Even for a visit? Yeah. Every time I go to their house, huh. on my way there or when I'd leave and there's a discomfort, that's when I would want to smoke. And all of a sudden, now it's like, I can't. <laughs> and so... What do you do with the discomfort? Yeah. And so I was referred to this another eight-week program called Mindfulness, Mindful Self-Compassion. Is that Was that with CAMH as well? Uh, no, but uh, someone who worked there said, here's this course that you might like. And that's when I learned how self-compassion is different from mindfulness because now I can do something about sitting in the shit. Now I can comfort myself. I can step out of the shit. I can affect change so I feel better, so that my suffering is ease. So then I realized, ah, this is what has been missing in my practice. So it really took that real low time of not just the depression after miscarriage, but then really seeing how, oh my gosh, I've been using weed for decades because home stuff, childhood stuff that I haven't, I'm still working on that nine years after my accident. Yeah. yeah. And uh, still working on today. But at least now when I have that discomfort that comes up when I'm, you know, within the dynamic in my family, now instead of weed, I can use any of my coping skills to comfort myself as opposed to like using distract myself using substance to, right. Yeah. So I actually want to go into how all of these experiences kind of propelled you in a certain direction in life. We've already talked a little bit about your career, some new habits that you acquired and how to deal with discomfort. But there's another 
thing that I want to bring up. I don't know if anyone can see this. It's a book called Purpose in Paralysis, written by Jasa. Um, tell us about this book and what does it mean to you? Oh, okay. Oh, oh. Thank you for bringing this up. Um, this book for me is about two things. One, as we talked about earlier, I too was the victim of that mindset that medicine is a certain way. Like before the accident for me, medicine is something a white man gives. That's what I saw. I judged people who did Reiki. Like I would a little be like, go get an education. Like very judgmental. So in this book, by sharing how I benefited from all of these other modalities, you know, and learning that emotion is energy that needs to move. And if you don't move that emotion, it stays in your body. Learning about shamanic healing, my journey in becoming a Chinese shamanic medicine practitioner, becoming a Reiki practitioner, becoming a medical Qigong practitioner, and sharing my stories and how not only did I have less pain, but I stood better. I walked better. I now rock climb because of these modalities. I shared that so that everybody else out there who's like me can become curious. Not to change minds, but to maybe when they catch themselves judging, to maybe catch it and be like, hmm. That is exactly what your book did for me when I first read it around, I want to say around 2018-ish, I think, is when I read your book. And that's exactly what it did for me. At first, it was like, okay, that's not going to work for me. Yeah, I don't think that's going to solve this shooting pain in my leg at first. And then I said, but how do I know that? So I started talking to a couple of friends who are Reiki masters. I started investigating how else can different modalities support my recovery. If not solo, I'm sure it can supplement it somehow. I have nothing to lose, okay? We're at a point where I've already tried everything. It's clearly not working. What else can you do? And that is when I started to explore the different modalities because it was the first time I read it was in your book. I actually never heard of them prior to. The extent of my knowledge in these other modalities were, I can't remember how I used to describe it, hippie stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I used to Hippy describe dippy. it. Hippy-dippy. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> well, I don't, I don't understand it fully. It just seems hippie-ish. But when I read about it in your book, I'm like, but how do I know it doesn't work until you try it? Mm -hmm. And it helped in many different ways. I think for me, it was a little bit too late from a physical perspective. I had kind of already surpassed, um, I'd say, maybe 95% of my physical recovery by the time I read your book. But from an emotional and mental standpoint, it did wonders. And it took me a really long time to actually practice it myself. Um, and to this day, I'm still not as consistent, but I welcome it so much with open arms today in comparison to when I first learned about it. And also, I'm so passionate about it now that that's why I'm doing this podcast. That's what inspires me to want to share with other people, like just open your mind and get curious to your point. Thank you, honestly, for what you do, because the the physical is easier. 
I think. Well, it's yeah, the you emotional can see that's everything, right? Yeah. You can't see your emotions. Exactly. But that's I, I love that you wrote this book and um, reading it at the time was just such a huge eye opener. And I think it has changed the rest of what my life looks like and how I deal with trauma. There are times when I might not need a Reiki master, but then when there are times that I do, I know exactly where to go mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and where it fits in my life. Yeah. And like I did that, obviously, so other People can change their mind, but obviously to give hope that there's other stones unturned. And um, yeah, so that's the first reason. The second reason, maybe the main reason, is it seems like it's a book on how I learned to walk again. Because mm-hmm. I did learn to walk again. But it's more so how am I continuing to learn to stand in my truth? Because for so long, I didn't even know how I felt, let alone my truth. So how can I stand in this sense of knowing who I am. Right. I love that. Which is still ongoing. Right. <laughs> but better than in my 20s. Exactly. I love that. And where can um, our listeners find this book? You can get that on Amazon or if you're in Toronto, any of the Toronto Public Libraries. Oh, great. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to write it and, and for sharing your story, not only through your book, but again, through this podcast. I think it's going to be so helpful. Um, something we didn't really touch on, but just while we're on the topic of paralysis, what were some of the injuries that you did sustain from the motorcycle accident? Okay, because I I accelerated into a curb and my bike and myself got thrown 10 feet across the air hitting a fence and I landed on my head. Landing on my head caused what is a vertical compression. So basically my spinal cord was squeezed and that caused the 12th thoracic vertebrae. So in the middle of the back, that vertebrae burst into pieces. And because that burst, that's what caused 60% compression of my spinal cord, hence not being able to move from the waist down. And so fortunately, majority of that burst disc was removed. A bone graft from my left hip taken to replace that vertebrae. Oh, and they also removed as much of the bones that was compressing my spinal cord as possible to decompress it. And then they stabilized that new bone graft in my back with two rods and eight screws. So that would be called an incomplete spinal cord injury as opposed to complete because it wasn't completely cut. It was an incomplete spinal cord injury. So that means that I am now able to walk but not barefoot. Um my coordination is off. So I've got strength, but not the ability to coordinate movement and um, decrease sensation and some bowel and bladder stuff. Decrease sensation to touch. Wow. Yeah. How are you coping with that today? We are now what? uh, It's going to be 13 13 years years this August. You know what? I've been coping well until I became a mother. Because then there are more things that I cannot do. I realize I can't. He always wants, you know, carga, carga, which means carry me, carry me. And it's like, I'm always saying, I can't carry you. And then my my child asks now, are you in pain? Are you in pain? Because if I'm not in pain, I can carry him. But if I'm in pain, so I know he's asking if I have pain, because then if I don't, I'll carry him. (laughs) And it's like the little little things. Like I live in a townhome complex where the parking lot is underground. But I can't carry him and groceries. So every now and then, depending on how much grocery groceries I have, 
will park above ground, but you can't park above ground unless you're a visitor. So I'll have to register my car as a visitor. Like so, these little things that if I didn't have a disability, and then just you know I can't help but wonder how's this impacting my son? Yes, having a mom who's disabled. Anyways, it's definitely harder Absolutely. now as a parent. Yeah, but. Good on you for for pushing through all of those little challenges that we take for granted. And by we, I mean fully abled individuals. You know, we kind of get frustrated when your phone rings at the wrong time or the doorbell goes off and your dog's barking like crazy. But how about all the other things that others experience that we don't go through? Mm -hmm. You know, so thank you for sharing some of those challenges, which are actually pretty big. I know it Thank sounds small. Thank you for validating it. Absolutely. Um, I actually have an, another question about the motorcycle accident itself. But before I get to that, for people who are listening who are riders, uh, were you wearing protection at the time of your accident? Just a helmet. Gear. Okay. Uh, I was, the accident happened while I was taking lessons at Centennial College. And they said wear gloves, boots, leather boots. And denim or leather. So I was wearing leather boots, leather gloves, and jeans and a denim jacket. And did the school recommend um, back protection at all? Or I guess not during the course? No. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's so tough because there are some people, unfortunately, and may they rest in peace. I've had friends with full protection and have passed away. Oh. Full gear. Um From an accident. mm -hmm, From a motorcycle accident. So um, I'm just kind of doing my own reflection as we're kind of talking right now. And sometimes we're just blessed to be where we are. You know, sometimes you can be as prepared as possible. Doesn't always, it's not always your saving grace. Um, My situation was a lot like yours. I wasn't fully geared. I had enough gear on um, and I did have a back protector at that time, but you know, there there are some that can't endure the pain or maybe there's something else that's happening in their life or maybe there's just this calling. I, I, I don't know the answer, but, you know, every time I hear of another motorcycle incident, I can't help but kind of reflect why. Why them? Was it because they made the wrong turn? Did they blink? Did they look at their phone? I don't know. And I wish I knew sometimes because I just want to figure it out for everybody else. But, you know, when I talk to individuals like you, you've conquered and survived so much um, with less gear than some of my friends that I've lost. So, I don't know, sometimes it's just timing, um, destiny, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I've thought that too, like, why did I do well? Yeah. Why did I do well? And then there's guilt with thinking about why I did do well. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to say it's because of this, this, that. But I will say what some rehab professionals said in the first year. They said, one, you're young. Two, I was at my physical best when the accident happened. And three, I have support, community, and family. I love that. So as a traumatic, um, as traumatic as a motorcycle accident can be, there's something, there's this little feeling that I, I can't really shake off. Um, and it's because you and I kind of have experienced it somewhat together, but I see it as a blessing in disguise. As cliche as it sounds, I'm convinced that it kind of led us 
to our calling to help others such as our listeners and, you know, people who have read your book. So for listeners who might be able to relate to your story, or should I say our story? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Our story. story. (laughs) What advice would you have for them? It's funny because, you know, I think I know what I'm going to say, but then when it comes to it, it's like, oh, my my body's saying something else. And my body wants to say is, can you be curious about living in more and more of your body? Is it possible to embody more parts? I'll give an example. Like, I'm 13 years post. I've been doing therapy so much. I'm trying to live more in my body. And yet, just when I saw my physio last week, he gave me this new cue to like imagine that I have like eyes, nose, and mouth at the back of my cranium. And he's saying that just so that I could pay more attention to the back of my head. Because as a busy person, my attention is always moving forward. So you can see when I'm walking, it's like I'm falling forward. And then he, so in addition to have paying attention to the back of my head as if I'm looking and smelling what's behind my head, so that energy is going that way, not just that way. Also imagine like a kangaroo tail and I'm leaning on it behind me. Again, he's great at giving me these cues so that where my attention goes affects how I move. Mm. It's crazy. Like you could do a before and after video of my walking and just changing w- how I pay attention, where I'm paying attention, pretending I've got that uh, tail that's like like a third leg that I'm using, has me more upright, on my heels more, balance is better, all just because I changed my attention. So I say that because there's so much resource in your body in terms of wisdom, intelligence, communication. There is a knowing even in terms of like how you move, like whether it's less pain or more range or whatever it is, just living in your body more with more curious attention, what's going to happen? So that's my advice is, can you bring more curiosity to how you live and feel in your body? I love that. And I particularly think that it resonates with me as a writer because when, and a lot of writers will know this, but when you first get on that motorcycle, and most people have seen um, this YouTube video, Flick of the Wrist, I think it's called. That's how a lot of riders learn to ride in Toronto. But they harp on the fact that you have to look where you're going. Pay attention to where you're going. That is exactly where your motorcycle is going to go. If you look at your target object that you don't want to hit such as a curb or a light pole or um, a cliff even your motorcycle is going to go there if you continue to look there so I think it's it's exactly what you said depending on where you focus your attention to in your body that's where your body is going to go and it's the same thing with your motorcycle and I just, I never made that connection before until we spoke about it right now. But that is so true in so many different ways. I love that you brought it back to that, especially because we both had our motorcycle accident. So it's this full circle. Yeah. And I think even like a sign of right healing that we can talk about our accident and talk about motorcycles, use it as metaphor without triggering anything in our bodies that, mm-hmm. you know, as a reflection of our growth. I love it. <laughs> so one question for you. 
I want to know what continues to inspire you and why. You know, I'm, well, two things. One is, again, the body. Like, it's just amazed that I'm still learning more about this body and there's still potential to improve. Like, so for anyone with an injury or illness, like, ah. There's so much more we don't know about the body than what we do know, mm-hmm. right? They say you only use 10% of your brain. So, like, I think that has to do with attention, consciousness, energy, spirit. Like, so there's just, I'm very inspired about the body because there's so much more to learn, meaning there's so much more to experience. That being said, I'm also becoming more inspired about how spirit supports me. So, for example, I had a recent experience where I was about to do a talk, a big talk, just last month. It was was a big gig, a lot of people, and it was paying me a lot. And I was nervous. And as I was kind of, you know, praying to everything, you know, God, guides, ancestors, Mother Earth. And as soon as I opened my door to take my son to daycare... I swear, there was this red robin that came right to the top of my steps and just looked at me and sang. Oh, my sang. God. Yeah. So me, me and my son just watched and stood there for like two minutes just singing to us. And then I take my son to daycare, come back home, and then I look up red robin. Because I believe in animal medicine. Right. And the message for me in that moment from like all my searches that was kind of like, oh, it was... Be confident in yourself and what you have to offer. Move with confidence. And it was really one of those moments where it's like, thank you, spirit. Like, it just validated for me. I am heard. I am loved. I am supported. When I'm praying, there is something listening to me, loving me, responding to me. And so... I don't have those moments a lot, you know, where you kind of feel. I, I, I someone told me those are mountaintop moments because you mm-hmm. can't be on the mountaintop every day, right? Right. And that's why you have the rest of the time you have faith, right? But that's something that inspires me is to just keep going. I'm, I'm, I'm guided. I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. If you're looking to live with more mindfulness and compassion in your own life. JASA offers wellness and resiliency workshops for corporations or personal groups of friends and family to prevent burnout and so much more. JASA is offering 10% off her workshops, which you can register for on her website, www.jasasulit.com. That's J-A-I-S-U-L-I-T.com. Use promotion code LEMONADE10 when you're ready to check out with JASA. Jasa, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and being so open and transparent about your experience and your journey. I really hope that you'll inspire a lot of people through this podcast. Thank you so much. And thanks to those listening. It was really fun. And I'm just grateful to be a part of this project that you're doing this podcast. I know it's helping so many people. And I just love the questions you ask. They're the perfect questions. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you again for tuning in and don't forget to subscribe, like, and share. Bye for now and don't forget to make lemonade. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical diagnosis or treatment. 
Listeners are encouraged to seek assistance from healthcare professionals on thelemonsaid.com or your nearest healthcare network. Crisis helplines are available to you 24 hours a day. Audio for the Lemon Said podcast was engineered and brought to you by Shoreline Sound Studios. Most people are looking to understand one or two things when it comes to their body. The first thing is, why am I stuck? And this could mean, why isn't my body getting leaner, losing weight, digesting better, sleeping great, or pooping regularly? These are just some of the concerns that you may have. That's why Be Elite has created a five-step assessment. This is the first way of figuring out why you're stuck. It's also their signature way of deciding what needs to be done to get to your goals. So what do they look at in the assessment? They look at hormonal profiling, which is the premise of where you carry body fat related to your hormones. They look at your metabolism and thyroid using a temperature and iodine scan. They look at digestion using a detailed questionnaire that goes through your timeline and history to see origins of issues. Your primal eating pattern tells them what your body seems to like in terms of macronutrients, as well as your Braverman's test, which is the premier way of looking at neurotransmitter deficiencies. Your transmitters being important for mood, energy, ability to fall asleep, and wake up refreshed. All things which relate to our body has the ability to burn fat. This helps them understand why your body is working the way it is and allows them to set up a game plan of what we would do if we worked with you in their signature online nutrition program. This month, the assessment is still on sale for $100, regularly priced at $224. So take advantage of this great offer at beelite.ca today. That's B-E-L-I-T-E dot C-A today. And Be Elite is offering 15% off Metagenic supplements. High-grade supplements used by doctors, traditional, functional, and naturopathic, as well as holistic nutritionists and practitioners. Use Lemon15 at checkout for 15% off.